start with the uh, news that there are new models and projections showing that, um, I mean, nothing surprising, I guess, if we've been following the story, but the deaths will increase maybe 3,000 a day if social distancing rules are eased. So that kind of leads me into this idea of physical distancing. And this happened during the 1918 to 20 flu pandemic as well. Yes, there was physical distancing, there was unrest about it. And other things followed. Exactly. The physical distancing in in the 1918 flu pandemic versus now, it's not as if we don't have a, an example of what did happen in 1918 when people protested and didn't want to wear their masks. You know, oh my gosh, that sounds a little familiar. What did happen then in various parts of the country? Well, and it is, it's such an interesting story. And right at the moment, everybody seems to be most interested in San Francisco's story because they actually had a thing called the Anti-Mask League. Um, but that was somewhat, um, it was a larger uh, rebellion against than most communities saw. Um, what we tend to see is in most communities, what happens is they do employ some different form of social distancing, and it varies community to community. Certainly they always start by wanting to do educational work and teaching people, right? Don't use the common drinking cup, wash your hands. Um, they publish public health brochures. The Red Cross publishes theirs in eight different languages, Hungarian, Russian, Italian, Bohemian, Spanish, Polish, Yiddish, and English, which gives you a sense of exactly uh, who the recently arrived immigrant population was in 1918. So they would do the public health ed education and ask people to avoid crowds, to avoid overcrowding, to cover their coughs and, and sneezes, to not spit in public, not use the public drinking cup. But pretty quickly, as we saw in 2020 also, they had to move to stricter social distancing practices. So they would close public spaces. They would prohibit public meetings. They would, in some communities, use public masking. Uh, some places use quarantines, they would open emergency hospitals, not so much to isolate people, but rather to make sure that especially poor people could get access to health care. Some places even used um, vaccines, even though we know that those were completely ineffective. And at the beginning, in most communities, you see people willing to go along because it's a terrifying illness. What we're hearing about coronavirus is very little. What I can tell you is in 1918, People were at home being cared for by their families and what the family had to watch was horrific to view. So people were really aware of how awful and how dangerous this was. So people would cooperate because they wanted to stay healthy. Certainly businesses would protest, churches often protest. Some school districts actually didn't close. Both New York and Chicago stayed open. Um, they had the blessing of the public health service to do so because the belief was that in some communities, children might be safer in their schools. Um, and that they could be sort of um, vectors, not for disease, but vectors for public health information to their families. So in some school districts, the schools stayed open. What would tend to happen is that across time, uh, people would get sick of it. Sound familiar? No. Uh, and so they, right? <laughs> so they would loosen restrictions. In many communities, they would then suffer a renewed wave of the illness. Uh, and usually in that second wave, 
they were less able to put in place the kind of social distancing measures they'd used the first time. And when they did, that's when you end up with things like the Anti-Mask League in San Francisco. What I find remarkable about the protests that happened in San Francisco is that it was about masking. Because the thing we have to notice about the San Francisco story is they do, as I say, a, a very good job. They, they pull all of these programs into place, including masking. In 1918. In 1918. And then they relieve the restrictions and then they have a new wave. They never consider going back to the social distancing measures. Oh, wow. They only go back to masking. And it's about the masking that they have these public protests. And what I think is interesting is that there was so much public pressure that they didn't even consider going back to social distancing the second time around. Wow. Right. So that for me, everybody wants to talk about the Anti-Mask League. I have multiple people calling me about it. The thing I find interesting is that that's as far as they could go. And even that caused dramatic public resistance. Now, the difference between 1918 and, and 2020 is we now know that social distancing works. We know how masking works, that it's going to protect people around us from droplets leaving us. It won't protect us from air we breathe in. Most of us understand that. So if I wear a mask but still get sick, I'll know that I made some sort of error. It won't be because of the mask. It's not the mask's fault. In 1918, they're still trying to figure out how social distancing works. They don't have the data from 1918 that we've got. Right. So they have a bit of an excuse because they saw that they did things and people got sick anyway. They didn't know that flattening the curve was a good thing and that they would still see people around them dying, but that that meant things were working. They just didn't have that information for the public in the same way that we have it in 2020. So I'm much more forgiving of the resistance in 1918 than I am of the resistance in 2020. But there is that mentality here in 2020 where, well, I'm not seeing that many people get sick, so you overreacted. When really it's like, no, 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 actually it's because we acted. <laughs> so that mentality is still there and it's it's reasonable to start there until hopefully you get a greater understanding of it. But that mentality is is in full force right now. Bingo. And it's been in full force um, in previous recent uh, episodes with influenza when people say, well, why did they get so hepped up? It didn't turn out to be that big of a deal. It's like because public health measures were working and people knew what to do. Exactly. That's what it looks like when it works. Exactly. very disappointing, actually, that we are looking at a situation in which we're already predicting that the death rates are going to increase, the infection rates will continue to increase. And yet at the same time, in some of those very locations, we are stepping away from the social distancing measures that would help us continue to flatten the curve. That's not to say I'm opposed to some loosening of restrictions. There are locations where that is appropriate. There are kinds of loosenings that are most appropriate. What we need to do is move very carefully with really close um, advice from the experts who actually understand what's happening. Right. And I think several states are doing that. California and New York are standouts at that. But nationally, that's really not what we're seeing in several states as cases are still increasing. No, it's exactly right. And that's what's worrisome. So I live in Washington state and we've actually flattened the curve in King County and I think across the state really effectively thanks to amazing leadership um, by a number of people, and most prominently our governor. Uh, so as he's announcing that they will open state parks, that strikes me as very reasonable. People will continue to social distance. They've proven that they know how to do so. So I'm not concerned about the moves that are be being made in Washington state, because I know we've all been really well educated by our leadership. People have been abiding by the restrictions really effectively. 
We've seen the results, so we understand that our actions matter and that we can protect not only ourselves, but perhaps more importantly, one another by following the rules that are in place. And so to open those rules then um, in careful ways that are not going to endanger people and especially won't endanger our most vulnerable populations who can continue to shelter in place as needed, um, then I'm very comfortable with loosening of restrictions. It's places where I think people are continuing not to understand why we social distanced, what it means to flatten the curve, why you want to wait to loosen restrictions until you've done so. Uh, those are the locations that I'm really worried for. And, and to be honest, I, I, I'm really quite appalled by some of the protesters. Um, I actually got my first piece of hate mail this week um, because of a piece that I'd written. I, I, I don't know which one, I assume it was the piece I wrote in time about needing to be careful about loosening restrictions and called me all kinds of names, which is fine. But what was upsetting was that there seemed to be this understanding of a tension between good health and people having enough food to eat and jobs to go to. And I understand that underlying problem. I mean, it's a major issue for so many people, people in my own family, my students' families. I'm well aware of the socioeconomic crisis that this means. So I'm really aware of the ways in which we need to be thinking about the American economy. And what we really mean is we need to be thinking about how to make sure everyone has enough money to be able to be sheltered in comfortable circumstances, to be warm, to be well-fed, to have clean water. All of those things are crucial. We need to make sure that happens. That is not necessarily in contradiction to also protecting people's lives. To loosen restrictions will endanger the very populations who also are already vulnerable economically. So are we really saying, okay, what we're gonna do is, we're gonna make sure you have enough to eat, but to do that, you have to now go and endanger your life. That's what I see happening. That's what really bothers me. And I think my poison pen letter writer really, I think misunderstood that I, I absolutely understand the broader context within which we're talking about social distancing. Right, exactly. You bring up a million good points. The one I think I want to start with is the idea of the the tension and the it has to be this or that. And of course, it's important that people have livelihoods. Of course, it's important that we're all taken care of. There are other ways to take care of people, ways that many in the U.S. have resisted for decades, uh, such as, you know, social safety nets and universal health care. These issues that have become political wedges and hot buttons. And, and, you know, now we're in a situation where people's lives are at stake and there's still politics being played or our political priming is leading us to respond to this politically when really there is care to be done. And again, in the context of people being out of work and really worried about their financial futures, I understand that reaction. And that's why it's so important for our leadership to get their story straight uh, and to be telling the truth rather than providing misleading characterizations about what the future is going to look like. Um, I'm actually relieved to see that the White House is actually acknowledging these new figures, even if they didn't choose to have them be public, um, at least they're aware of it, but they should be saying that stuff publicly. There's one thing we know from 1918, the American public responds best when the leadership is very clear and very honest about what's actually happening. When they're told sort of sympathizing, optimistic, misleading versions of the truth, 
it makes it harder for them to know what to do. It makes it harder for all of us. We need clear, direct, honest information. And that's when people will do their best in terms of fulfilling, you know, their social, what I would call their social duty to protect one another. I also am very appreciative of our governor in California, Gavin Newsom, because I feel like he's he's sort of threading some needles. You you have the same kind of setup in Washington where the coastal areas are more progressive and the inland areas are more conservative. We have that tension as well. And we have seen some small protests and there are definitely political divides. But through all of that, there is this sort of science-based reason overarching everything. And I would like to see that at a national level. Why, Why do you think, and I guess this might harken back to our history, but why do you think we in the U.S. are having such a hard time navigating this moment when actual lives are at stake? The way that I can connect it back to history um, is to suggest that we just continue not to learn the lessons that are vividly in front of us. So 1918 offers all kinds of insight. It offered at the time all kinds of opportunities to recognize once more some of the inequities Uh, some of the lack of preparedness, some of the unwillingness to move past the individual to think more um, broadly, more socially across communities to protect one another, but they weren't enacted then. uh, And we've continued to sort of fail to do so because I do think that we have routinely shown a, a, a preoccupation with the protection of individual rights and often in ways that were not only distinctly exclusionary, but also broadly harmful, I think. I agree. Do you have an example of that to help uh, illuminate that that concept? Well, the 1918 flu pandemic is, of course, the perfect opportunity. Uh, at that time, we had uh, a grossly inequitable healthcare system. Uh, the difference in life expectancy on the eve of that pandemic: uh, white people lived to be 55.1 on average; black people lived to be 38.9. Wow, that's a huge differential. We're talking a 16-year difference right, in life expectancy for black versus white people. We all also know that at that time, the poor were often living right at the edge of survival. So when the pandemic hits, you have populations who, if they lose a single breadwinner, will be thrown into hunger, into being cold, into potentially being homeless. You also have populations who, when they try to go to emergency hospitals that are set up, to deal specifically with influenza patients, they're barred from those or sent to the basement um, because they're African-American. This is all vividly obvious in the midst of the pandemic that we are lacking the kind of social safety net that would mean that the loss of a breadwinner would not throw a family into complete economic crisis, that we had a healthcare system in which some people were so disadvantaged by way of not only all of the socioeconomic structures that were in place, um, that disadvantage them, but then in, in turn access to, to equitable health care. That's really clear during the pandemic and nothing is done. So in the aftermath, some nations turn to a more nationalized health care system. Some nations really build up their public health systems. The United States chooses to do neither, nor do we think about doing anything related to either the, the economic or the racial hierarchies that we're ensuring year after year after year that a large 
part of our population simply could not be economically successful. I actually don't hear Woodrow Wilson's name ever in conversations about the 1918 flu pandemic. So I'm curious, and I understand that the president maybe wasn't as towering of a figure then, but let's talk about that. What's going on there? Great question. You're right that Woodrow Wilson's voice doesn't really turn up because he never speaks to the flu pandemic. Whoa. Ever, ever. 675,000 Americans die in the flu pandemic of 1918, 1919. He never speaks publicly of it. He's preoccupied with the war and he's concerned that attention to the flu pandemic will distract people from the war effort. It's for that very reason that of course, things like the fourth Liberty Loan Drive is kicked off with massive parades all over the country in late October in the midst of a pandemic. They are so concerned about the war that he simply refuses to speak of the pandemic. Um, and in fact, public health measures are sold as um, war measures. Wow. Right. Grip, Kaiser Wilhelm's greatest ally, one public health poster says. Right. Nurses become, you know, the, the frontline troops or, you know, they. So again and again, the war is really foreground. And then even in the public newspapers, it's, it's hard for the pandemic to get a hold uh, alongside the war news. And only in the very deepest part of the pandemic do we see the headlines really turning to the pandemic. And then that's very short lived. Um, it, it again sort of captures the American imagination and continues to do so to this day. Well, it's funny because we've still got the war effort, mm-hmm. right? Like we're battling this virus and nurses are still on the front lines. So that war terminology is still very present. I think that an American thing, perhaps. It is. <laughs> But we also have kind of the opposite in a president in that this president wants to talk about it every single day on TV, on Twitter, everywhere. And yet potentially the leadership is still lacking. There's no question. And obviously this is is my own personal position, not representing anyone else's. Sure. But my sense is that this president cares about nothing other than himself and attention to himself. He is a solipsistic a remarkable horror uh, to have in the White House in the midst of a crisis like this, because those press conferences are not about public education. They are often misleading and they're primarily about him. Uh, And they have really interfered with getting a direct and clear message out to the American people. Um, I I find it reprehensible uh, and very, very disappointing. I hoped that this moment could help him rise to be his best self. Uh, I don't think that we're seeing that. And the cost of that, I, I fear, is, is a lot of American lives. Yeah. In fact, I was so, we, we, Saturday Night Live the other week did, uh, Brad Pitt, you know, was played Dr. Fauci, which was, you know, a, a kind of a joke in the news. I I actually teared up, you know, because because it, in, in, this, in this search for leadership, Dr. Fauci has emerged, yes. And, and so when Brad Pitt, you played him, and then I'm so desperate for a leader and wanting to honor that leader. Um, and of course, we've got our governors. But I thought that was an interesting moment. I think Dr. Fauci is, is a national hero uh, because it must be very, very difficult to be him uh, and to do what he's doing. But he is, he is bearing that for all of us. And I think that really is something to be applauded. It would be much easier um, to have stepped down from his position because it's so intolerable to work with this president. But he didn't choose to do that. He is working alongside uh, in a way that has been so valuable for all of us. And I don't think we can ever thank him enough, but I assume he will be given uh, great honors in his life to come. And he has earned every one of them uh, because I, I like I like you, um, 
have been looking for that leadership and, and he is where we find it. And as you say, with a lot of other people as well, our governors, some of our governors have done us very proud as well. I, I keep thinking that I wish we could uh, reopen the presidential nomination process because I think we've got some governors who are looking really good right now. I think so too. If this had happened six months earlier, it would be a very different uh, landscape right this moment. In addition to this systemic or maybe as part of this systemic choice we tend to make societally. I think individually also, we um, we have a mindset of, I believe in individualism in a lot of ways, but I also believe in collectivism. I think there's a time and place for each. But I think collectively, we have this idea of, well, if you're out there doing that, there, there were choices you made in your life that led you there. But of course, there are also systemic choices that we don't take into consideration. But I think there's also a lack of will in a way. And I go back, for me, the Example that looms large is the Sandy Hook shooting. I feel as if, uh, you know, children at an elementary school killed in a large measure was the most upsetting thing, I think. Even though I lived through 9-11, that was the most upsetting thing I can think of. And we did nothing. I felt at that time that if that wasn't going to give us reason to to have the conversation and and try to figure it out, then I'm not sure what can get us to have a conversation about anything, really. And I'm usually an optimist, but that really, that one really hit me. And so now when things happen that are large like this, I'm like, well, can we do this? Can, yeah, I hope we can, but I don't know. And I won't try to predict. You'll, you'll find that historians are very hesitant to make predictions about the future. It's just not what we do for a living. We always embarrass ourselves when we do. But I do know that what has happened in the past does not have to be what happens in the present. We've seen landmark changes in this country. They don't happen necessarily because the Congress steps up. They usually happen because the people step up, right? So when we think of the important civil rights legislation of the 1960s, for instance, now clearly we still live in a racially inequitable society. I'm the first to understand the depths of the ongoing problems of of white supremacy in this country, but there's no denying that, that The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65 changed American life. Um, That didn't happen because the Congress wanted it to happen. Didn't happen because the president wanted it to happen. It happened because the people who needed it to happen demanded that it happen and forced the nation to realize how out of step it was with its purported values. So that it got to a point where I think the nation was frankly embarrassed internationally in the midst of the Cold War, and even domestically, I think, being forced to see day after day after day, children and young people being brutalized for doing the most basic things. That may be the kind of movement that we need now. Again, and I believe that it is possible. Now, I'm not saying the movement would look the same, but I do believe it will come from the grassroots. Um, I do think it will be people like you and I and others who already knew about some of the problems in American life before the pandemic, but realize that now others who were unwilling to see them or unable to see them can no longer take that position that there's nothing the matter. So I think there is an opening here and there's no reason. There's no reason we can't take this opening. We can do this. The question of whether we will, of course, can be left to uh, modelers and prognosticators. But um what happened after the flu pandemic? Now, I know that in history, in our minds sitting here today, it's wrapped up with World War One. It's wrapped up with other things. But what happened during and in the wake of the 1918 to 20 flu pandemic? Well, it's really quite remarkable the ways in which uh, the society just reverts to its old self. It's very striking. 
And there are multiple reasons for that. But one thing that is clear is that people are anxious to go back to the way things were. And we already are hearing those voices right now. Our own president has said, you know, we just need to move on. Let's forget about this thing. That has a lot of problems connected with it. But one thing I fear is that when people are going through a crisis, they begin to yearn for this imagined past and they want to go back to it as quickly as possible. And that works really well if you're a person of privilege. It'd be great for me to go back to the way my life was before the pandemic. I live in a beautiful spot. I have a lovely job. I work with smart young people. I don't have to worry about having bread on my table. So a return to the status quo for me would be terrific. But the reality is there are many people for whom historically in 1918 really needed some change to take place, but it doesn't because the people in power are much more anxious to return to the status quo. They don't want to look back. They want to look forward. They don't want to make change. They want to reinforce the control that they already have in the society. So in the aftermath of 1918, very little changes. So for instance, in the world of public health, we do have some changes. I think people are much more conscious about germ theory, uh, much clearer on some basic hygienic practices because the Public Health Service and the American Public Health Association do an amazing job publicizing the needs for you know, washing your hands, covering your cough. So some basic practices change. Um, we also really have a powerful pushback against a couple of behaviors. One is public spitting. Lots of cities already had ordinances on the books and during the flu pandemic, they actually enforced them. So you can get a fine, you can even get a few days in jail. You might even have your name published in the newspaper if you're caught spitting in public in some cities, right? So people quit doing that. And then they also, uh, quit having a common drinking cup. So imagine in the olden days, you would go into your workplace, you'd go into your classroom, and there would be a pail of water and everyone would drink from that same pail using the same cup, which today makes our stomachs turn just to even imagine. But that was common practice in, in the public sphere in the United States in 1918. And it's not by 1919. It's gone. It's outlawed in most cities uh, as a result. So these kinds of really simple changes happen. Do we create a more robust public health service? Do we really imagine ways in which we could make healthcare, adequate healthcare available to every person living in the country? No, we don't go there. And so you have some minimal changes, but by and large, the culture moves on. And in some ways, I think it's actually a quite tragic outcome um, for many reasons, not just the public health reasons, but the ways in which um, the suffering is also just forgotten. Right, A forgotten pandemic means not only do you forget the possible lessons, but you also forget the experiences that people have had. And to do so for me is, is inhumane and I think really quite costly for a society. Is there anything you'd like to add that I didn't ask you that you think it's important for people to know? Continue to listen to the public health experts. Again, I'm not an expert in 2020 or on the coronavirus or COVID-19, but they are. So they're the ones we need to listen to when you're making decisions about whether to go to the beach or whether you can go to the grocery store or whether you should have your groceries delivered or whether you should do X, Y, or Z. Listen to what they have to say because they know and we have to trust them. This is a moment in which trusting government is very low. I think that's costing us. And you see it obviously in some of the protests that there just isn't a trust in government. We have to be able to trust the experts and to trust data right now. And I really urge people to do so. These people are doing really important hard work. And the other thing I think is to continue to hold in your heart um, and to hold in your mind 
how important it is that we deal with the human costs of this, including the economic costs that people are bearing, and that we not allow um, this to cost people their lives in ways beyond the virus, ways that we can prevent, including people being hungry, people not having access to the most basic needs. That's simply not tolerable. We have to make sure we don't let that happen. Well, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for being on the show and and, and talking with me today. Thank you so very much. Oh, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Twitter at NewsInContextSF, and you can find links to all of that at NewsInContext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.